Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations. Today we're exploring independent media produced in the Bronx. First, I'm talking with Casey Santiago, a Fordham University student and young independent filmmaker. Casey's film, Mirror Mirrors, explores her high school's deep ties to important events and people in New York history. After the break, I speak with Marissa White, Director of Creative Services at BronxNet, about the importance of public access television in community building. Good morning, Casey. Good morning, Robin. So, Casey, can you summarize the documentary for me? Essentially, the documentary talks about the history of my high school from its foundations within the Sisters of the Divine Compassion and how over time that evolved from one woman, Mary Caroline Dannett Starr, and her conversion to Catholicism and how this would eventually evolve into a religious order through her partnership with Thomas Preston, who was her spiritual guide. And so over time, I basically talk about how this has evolved. It would evolve into the House of the Holy Family and how they sought out to help underprivileged girls who were living within um, Manhattan. That would evolve into a religious order. And this religious order to help underprivileged girls working within the Industrial Revolution, within the 18th century, working within factories, this merges with the robber barons that they would have worked for like Collis Huntington and Frederick Havemeyer, when the Sisters of Divine Compassion moved to the Bronx later on and would purchase the mansion. So my documentary basically talks about the contrast between the past and the present and how the secular part of the history within the 18th century merges with a religious component to form my high school and how that has impacted me. And I want to get into like your personal experience in a few minutes. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the high school and the documentary. How was Preston High School a reflection of what was going on across New York City like in the 19th century? That was a part of your documentary. Okay, so within the 1700s and 1800s, there was a huge anti-Catholic sentiment in New York City. And so there was definitely a conflict between Protestants and Catholics in terms like the standard structure of an education, what that should be. Protestants upheld like the secular standard of education where the religion and the state should be separated. But the Catholic ideal of an education was where the religious and secular merges so that a student could be educated morally and uh, academically. So that was definitely a new concept at the time. And so like um, the founders of my school, like Thomas Preston, he he was definitely like an advocate for like the Catholic standard. And he gave like speeches that were definitely criticized by the press. Even within my research, I, um, I saw the editor of the New York Times, Horace Greeley. He was a Protestant and he harshly criticized Thomas Preston's views. Like he he was like, I don't see the validity in this. Like he's saying that they should be merged together. Like how could this system of education be effective? And so definitely Irish Catholic immigrants in particular faced many challenges. Their churches were burned down. You know, they had to fight to practice their faith. It wasn't really, um, I think you said this in your documentary too, he was an advocate for separation of church and state. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. People like Mary Caroline Dennis Starr, like I mentioned, she wasn't originally Catholic herself. She was Protestant. And who is she? Uh, she's the one of the founders of my high school as well. 
in dealing with New York City, so we have this anti-Catholic sentiment um, and new immigrants who are coming in. I want to hear a little bit more. Let's go back a little bit further to Frederick Havemeyer. Who is Frederick Havemeyer? He actually owned the first company that would evolve into the Domino Sugar Refinery. Okay. Like, you know, like Domino Sugar that you buy at the supermarket. Right. And there's that big Domino Sugar factory that has, you know, that's kind of popular here in New York City uh, that I believe they're taking down. I'm not sure. That's actually the location that he owned. How did he start the process for your high school? Why is he in your documentary? Okay. So he was like a huge uh, robber baron and he profited off of the opportunities within the Industrial Revolution, which is a striking contrast to the mission of the Sisters of the Divine Compassion. Who were later on the people who took over your school. Yes. He essentially wanted to purchase the mansion because he was tired of the noise and pollution of city living. So, like, within New York City, there was definitely a lot of, like, pollution with, like, all the factories and, you know, things being processed and manufactured. So he sort of wanted to escape from that, and he purchased the mansion as a way to escape like a vacation house. Right. And the mansion eventually will become your, your high school. But yes. right now it's this mansion for this very rich man who owns the Domino Sugar Factory right now. So essentially Havemeyer, the reason why he sold the mansion was because his sugar refinery had actually burned down. And so that was a tremendous hit to his assets and his business. So he lost a lot of money. He lost a lot of money. Okay. And he had no choice but to sell it. So he sold his summer home to Collis Huntington. So who is Collis Huntington? Collis Huntington is a robber baron, and he helped build the Transcontinental Railroad, which is a pretty big project at the time. So he was wealthy also. Yes, extremely wealthy. And he purchased the mansion from Havemeyer. Okay. And so this Collins Huntington... Uh, purchased the mansion and the land surrounding it. Um, and what kind of person was he? Carlos Huntington, he was a shrewd businessman. And yeah. it sounds like shrewd doesn't mean like smart. It means smart and maybe a little underhanded. Yes. He did what he had to do to get his way. What did he do? Well, he employed Irish and Chinese workers, but he employed them because he could take advantage of them. He could give them lower wages. He could give them dismal working conditions, make them work a ridiculous amount of hours just to get the project done. The Transcontinental Railroad. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, it's important not to overlook the discrimination within the time period because Collis Huntington, um, upon the completion of the railroad, he actually had a final picture taken. So he was like, okay, group photo, me... All the workers, this is it, we did it. And he's actually at the center of the picture, shaking uh, hands with someone, saying, you know, this is done, we did it. And surrounding him is only Irish workers. And you think to yourself, well, there were Chinese people there. Like, where did they go? And they didn't just disappear. He just purposefully excluded them from the photo. It sort of demonstrates, like, the underlying racial tension. Yeah. So even though at the time... Irish immigrants were discriminated against. I guess they were higher on the social status scale than Chinese Americans or, or Chinese workers or slaves in this case. Yes. And then the Sisters 
of the divine compassion end up purchasing the mansion eventually? Yes, because that's when they would move from Manhattan to the Bronx. Okay. Both Huntington and Havemeyer wanted to escape the noise and pollution of city living. But the difference with Huntington is that there was a change. The economic change, basically. Yes. Within the Bronx, it was evolving into a very different type of neighborhood. Many of the owners of the mansion surrounding the neighborhood, because it was like a mansion community, they were actually burning down or tearing apart their mansions because they didn't really think it was useful anymore. And they wanted to get out of the area also, I would assume. Yes. So Huntington was not an exception to that trend. He wanted to leave as well. And so the land holdings that he had initially purchased from Havemeyer, he... He basically put up an ad saying, I want to sell all of this. And then who bought it? The Sisters of the Divine Compassion. And they bought it for what reason? They actually wanted to escape the noise and like all the chaos that was in Manhattan. Because I'm thinking if it's a mansion, oh, wow, that must be really expensive. How are these sisters these going to afford this? But since Huntington kind of wanted to get out of the area anyway... He might have given them a pretty good price so they can afford it. Yes. And then they turned the mansion into what? Basically, the um, that area, the mansion, was a convent. That was what they used it for. Okay. So now that we're up to this convent who are training young girls between 2 and 17, giving them a trade, teaching them about Catholic life, what happens next? The girls that were being trained in Manhattan, the House of the Holy Family, the girls who didn't want to leave... They became the members of the Sisters of the Divine Compassion. Okay. So in order for you to uh, go from just living and working there, you grow up, you want to stay there, you become a nun. Yes, essentially. Like the, the girls who wanted to stay, they... A lot of them ended up becoming nuns. Yes, because um, essentially they devoted their life to the mission of educating these girls. And so... Um, the values that they upheld to stay devoted to this mission, it was it reflected the qualities of a religious order. And so Mother Mary Veronica and Thomas Preston, it was almost natural that they would found an official religious order. So uh, can I ask you, Casey, um, what was, and you spoke a little bit about like, you know, taking on this project, what was the biggest challenge while producing this documentary? The biggest challenge was editing. I think the biggest challenge was undertaking the challenge. (laughs) The film was the challenge. Are you glad you did it, though? I am glad that I did it. Why? I remember in the process, I was in agony. Like, all those hours of editing, I had no idea what I was doing. I kind of taught myself. Like, I watched other people edit, and I would watch them. And I'm thinking, okay, they're doing it this way. They're moving the mouse that way. Okay, maybe if I do the same thing, maybe it'll, maybe it'll be the same. I'm hoping it's the same result. So it got to a point where they're like, Casey, like, you have to do some of the editing. We can't do all of this for you. And I was just like, I don't know how you expect me to do that because computers and me, no. <laughs> but I somehow managed to figure it out. And, of course, like, um, within the process, I had other people, like, edit it down towards the end to check it, to do it, like, in a, in a more refined way. Yeah, but I think the biggest challenge was staying determined, staying 
dedicated to the project because it was something that I was definitely passionate about. Like I knew, like I had did this research paper. I could not go back now. Like I've already devoted so much time into investigating the sources and I really did enjoy it. But there were times where I wanted to pull my hair out. I thought that like one moment, oh my God, my file's lost. The documentary's gone. <laughs> I had this panic. I was like, everything's gone. But then it wasn't gone. <laughs> so I definitely learned a lot. And you're also leaving behind a legacy for other people who are interested in Preston High School or who are interested even in the history of New York City. Do you kind of see it like that? Because you delve into a lot of history in this documentary. Yes. At the time, I did not think about it. I was... was Overwhelmed. Yes, I was overwhelmed. (laughs) And I I didn't think that my documentary or even my project would have have this impact or that it could even reach this level. I I was talking to some of my classmates about it. And they were like, oh, you did that when you were in high school? Like, you edited this whole film? Like, you did this thing? Like, how? And I'm just like, you know what? I don't know either. (laughs) I think that is a lesson in itself, that some of the best experiences we go through and some of the best things that we end up having um, to look on and admire, we don't know how we got there. And I'm a lot older than you. And a lot of the things that you're saying I can relate with because I'm like, I don't know how I got here, but I'm here. So, Casey, in your documentary, you also spoke with Sister Mary Lucille Bridgets, who was at Preston for like 45 years, beginning in 1957. What did you learn from speaking with her? Sister Mary Lucille, she's a very eccentric lady. Like, oh, really? Yes. Like, she has a great sense of humor, something that I was not expecting from her. When we had um, actually started the interview, like, I realized, I was like, wait, like, did I get her background right? Like, I thought she was this person. And she was like, no. <laughs> she was like, nuh-uh-uh. She was like, I was the chairperson of the language department. You know, I did French. And she was talking to me in French. And I was like, oh, no. And she seemed like she had a lot of fun while she went to Preston, too. She was talking about the dances and um, all that stuff. I don't know. Do you still do some of those things? Do you still have those type of parties and dances? I think what was really interesting is that when many of the girls in my high school actually viewed my documentary because I had, like, an assembly to screen it, I think they were so shocked at, like, the amount of events that my high school had. They were like, wait, we have to bring that back. Right. So hopefully it will revive some of some the, of the stuff that, that was lost. going on. Yes. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. And real quick, what's next for your documentary? Well, I'm very focused now on trying to get it screened in as many places as possible. What's that process been like? Filmmaking is very expensive. And I remember definitely the people that were on my casting, that were on my crew, the, my production team, they were... They were always, like, complaining, like, you know we're not getting paid for this, right? You're asking us for help, but we're not getting paid for this. So I was kind of just like, you know what? Like, I'm not getting paid for this either. And I actually had to start a GoFundMe page to raise funds to submit my film to various contests because the fees can get so expensive. You could spend hundreds of dollars and you've only entered a project into, like, Maybe just one contest. So what's the website if people want to go and support your GoFundMe? Well, the title of my campaign is the Mirror Mirrors Film Festival Fund. So if anyone's interested in donating to that, I would greatly appreciate it. My thanks to Casey Santiago for coming in and discussing her documentary, Mirror Mirrors, the Past and Present of Preston High School. Thank you so much. Thank you.
This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm discussing independently produced media from the Bronx. We just heard from Casey Santiago, a young independent filmmaker. And next up, I talk with Marissa White of BronxNet about the importance of public access TV in the borough. The Bronx has a list of notable professionals who've gotten their start at the public access TV network, BronxNet. They include former Guardian Angel and host of the show Street Soldier, Angie Martinez, journalists like Dean Meminger, Darlene Rodriguez, Sheba Russell, and Nicole Johnson, and comedian chef Baron Ambrosia, whose cooking show Bronx Flavor took a fun look at cooking in the borough. I'm Robin Shannon. On today's Fordham Conversations, I'm joined by Fordham alum Marissa White, who's Director of Creative Services at BronxNet. We'll discuss the importance of public access TV and the opportunities BronxNet provides to residents in the borough. Now, full disclosure, the Norwood News is in partnership with WFUV and BronxNet TV. We've partnered for a four-part series on development projects happening across the Bronx and their impact on community residents. So Marissa and I already know each other. <laughs> Hi, Robin. Hi, good morning. <laughs> Glad to be here. Uh, so let's start off, Marissa. What's the difference between public access and public broadcasting? I'm sure you get that question a lot. We get that question a lot. So public access television it was created for local residents in the community. So with us would be the Bronx community to produce their own programming. Public television is a little different in that those shows are funded and then broadcast to the public, free station. Uh, but public access is actually the community's voice, views, and visions on what is happening with them, what they want to talk about, what their storytelling ideas are. So that's what public access television is. You come in, you take the training classes, and you have access to the facility. You have access to the equipment and the channels, and your show is aired on our channel. And this is for anybody in the Bronx who's interested in doing this? Anyone in the Bronx who's interested in doing this. We have trained thousands of Bronx residents in our over 20-year history. In the Bronx, uh, we are located on the campus of Lehman College on the west side of the Bronx. We have recently opened a new facility in the East Bronx at the Mercy College Bronx campus, and we're training residents in the East Bronx because we saw that there was a need on the east side of our community as well for, for the training and for the facilities. So we have two facilities that are in full operation, and we have plans for a South Bronx uh, facility sometime in the near future. So can you walk me through, I'm a Bronx resident, and I want to get involved with TV and possibly producing a show, but um, I don't know where to start. So what's the first thing you take me through? What's the first thing I need to know? So you can go to our website at uh, bronxnet.org. You can call us at 718-960-1180. And, and we get that question a lot. When does the next training cycle start? And we, we will give you the dates of when this training schedule starts. You come in, you bring your proof of residence, you pay the fee, and you get started with the class. We have a flexible schedule for classes. We offer classes in the evenings. So for people who are working and it's inconvenient to come during the day, we have classes in the evenings. We have Saturday classes. And we also have classes in the daytime. So that if you're retired, say, or you have a part-time job, you work at night and you want to take classes during the day. So we try to accommodate the various schedules that we feel that people might have. You come in and you take the classes. And the classes are fun. I visit them once in a while because I used to teach them. So I, I miss kind of seeing, seeing our, our locals, you know. Um, so it's fun. And, and it's, a, it's a nice atmosphere. It's, a, it's lively. It's fun. And there's a lot of laughing. And I see them on campus sometimes. The trainers will take them out on campus with the cameras to show them lighting techniques outside and filters and things like that. And they're, they're always smiling and laughing. And that's a good thing. I think when you're open-minded, learning comes easier. 
So uh, it's a good experience. You get certified. We have an orientation after the certification and we take you through all the steps. Okay, now you've learned how to do this. Now you want to produce your own show. This is what you need to do. And we show them how to label the shows, how to submit the shows to us. Everything is digital now. Yeah, so it makes it easier. It makes it a lot easier. I mean, we went from tapes to DVDs and now it's all digital. And um, a lot of people uh, got right on board with it. Some people it took them a little longer, myself included. Uh-huh. You know, we're dinosaurs. Sometimes I remember those days of tape editing, and I sometimes I miss it. You know, I don't miss the stress of trying to get it just right. But um, you know, we're trying to bring people along to the digital age because uh, the world is moving in a multimedia digital direction. direction. Yeah. So um, Bronxnet, obviously, you can develop your own show if you're a Bronx site. Do you have to ever deal with like? maybe some eccentric people who were like, there's no way we can do that show. Like, how do you handle those? Yeah, (laughs) well, sometimes, um, so yeah, sometimes there's a, there's eclectic, uh, interesting, spirited people who like to produce programs. And there is a space for that. We do have time slots for those types of programs that are just a little bit outside the, what we call the norm or a little bit outside of the safety times, family safety times. Um, Yeah, we welcome everyone and we do give guidelines. We do have guidelines about cursing and uh, nudity and content. Mm -hmm. So we we do have a guideline that we do share that this is what we're looking for. And occasionally we'll get a submission that has something that's kind of bending that a little bit. And we'll contact the producer and say, okay, so we had to pull the show because it contains X, Y, and Z. Most people are great about it. They'll just edit it out. Or we'll find a later time. If it's something that's not, you know, it's it's somewhat questionable, you wouldn't want it at, on at 8 o'clock at night, but it can air at midnight. So we have uh, we have those sort of procedures in place. But is there ever, uh, like, a zany show? I think I can do a half an hour program on somebody watching my fish swim or something, like, eclectic and kind of um, like that. Sometimes it's performance art, I think, is the strangest thing I've seen, where performance art is all subjective. You know, you look at it and you say, oh, okay, I'm not quite sure what that means, but okay. So yeah, we've had a little bit of that, but mostly it's people wanting to share culture, wanting to share ideas, wanting to share spirituality. We do have a lot some spiritual programs, and we also have some youth-oriented programs. We had one show where it was specifically geared towards fathers, you know, and, and how to spend time with your kids and things to do with them. Uh, we had, a, like I said, a cooking show. Um, so most of the time it's the sharing of ideas and occasionally we do get the weird performance art and we try to find a place to put that. Um, we have a new series that we're, we're airing called the Bronx Filmmakers Collective. What's that about? It's a group of Bronx filmmakers who are making their own films and we're airing the films that these Bronx filmmakers are making. So we've had a ladies night where all the filmmakers were women. We've had a comedy where all the films are comedy oriented, uh, horror, which Oh yeah, interesting. Um, Wait, what was the horror one? About? I, I, they had there were several films that had a horror oh, sort theme of to theme them. to them. So they were all thematic, and they they we run these blocks of films, and they're actually quite good. And they're all Bronx filmmakers, and they've uh, they're bringing the films to us to air. So it's the sharing of art and voice and vision is really quite fabulous because it's very eclectic, as is the Bronx. So I, like, as I said, I think it's a. A, a pretty good indication of where our community is. Now, earlier I, I mentioned um, someone I think is pretty funny. His name is Baron Ambrosia, who oh, got his yeah. start at BronxNet. Tell me a little about him. Okay, he's a very interesting <laughs> character. Talk about performance art. <laughs> Actually, he's a filmmaker. His name is Justin Fornal, 
and he's very, very talented. He's a producer, he's a cinematographer, and he's also a talent. And uh, Baron Ambrosia is a character that he created to explore the culinary escapades throughout the Bronx. And uh, he visited various food sites in the Bronx and did a bunch of things. One was on food trucks, Bronx food trucks. He's done a Cucci Frito episode. He's done a cuchu frito as a Latin dish, and I think it's made with pork and it's it's Mm. delicious. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's done programs on mofongo, which is another type of Caribbean dish. So all these different dishes. But he's he what he did was not just going to the restaurants and saying, okay, the traditional way, let's look at the best dish that you serve. He comes up with a story that the Baron uh, gets into, and there's always this thread of what trouble the Baron is getting into. Um, and he dresses in this these outlandish costumes. As culinary ambassador to the mysterious land of the Bronx, Baron Ambrosia's appetite knows no bounds. And the fun thing about doing uh, Bronx flavor was that he loved to use all local people in the films and even some of our interns. I was even in one of them where the Baron gets in trouble for poisoning the water somehow and everybody's turning purple and I had to show my hands and say, look what that crazy man did to my hands. And he wanted me to do it real Italian, real Bronx. You right. know, he kind of capitalizes on who you are, which is very, very funny about him. Right. And uh, he produced the series for a while with BronxNet. And uh, now I believe he's at the Food Network and he's doing stuff over there with them. But he's very talented, very funny. And he is a lover of food. And he found a way to create this character and a Baron. And, and we asked him, how'd you come up with Baron Ambrosia? So apparently the Baron title is like the lowest nobility title that you could have. And he's quite a a scad too. <laughs> so, uh, so he wrote this character, and he would take it. Uh, he did a season, and he had a storyline running through the season. We saw the Baron get arrested. We saw him go to jail. Um, we saw him break out. So, yeah, it was very interesting. And what was great was that a lot of our interns had the opportunity to work on some of the shoots with him, and work with his videographer that he brought in. He had a professional camera person. They learned what it was like to be on a movie shoot, so to speak, or a video shoot. And he also did a lot of um, workshops for us where he would school our students in the art of what he called guerrilla filmmaking and how you don't have a huge budget. So how do you tell a story when you don't have a budget, say, to buy costumes or to rent a location because location renting is is ridiculously expensive. So he did things like that, and he showed pieces of his own work where it's supposed to be on a bridge, and when he shows the raw, it's really not. And yeah. So it. <laughs> like so he the was trickery of the camera. The work. trickery of the camera work, and also the the art of storytelling and the art of telling a story through this outlandish character who gets into all of these scrapes. And he had been asking me for a long time to get to get in front of the camera. And I was like, absolutely not. So finally, I did it. They drew purple lines all over my hands. And I was like screaming at him in the camera. It was very funny. Did you at least get the taste test, whatever it was, the, 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 was um, the food Yeah, focus? I did not. I did no. not go on any of those shoots. But a lot of our people did. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also did a special on the Bronx. He, he did a wide variety of Bronx foods. And yeah, they were eating all over the Bronx. They, were, they would come in well stuffed. So what kind of programming, if we would take us back to like when BronxNet first kicked off, what kind of programming? Did we they had African American programming. We had uh, Spanish language programming. One of our access producers who's been with us since the very beginning uh, is an Albanian producer who does programming on his Albanian culture. Um, so that's been a, a mainstay. And we've had a lot of spiritual programming in the beginning. We still have some of that happening now. Now we have programming from Ghana. 
We have programming from um, the Garifuna culture. We have programming, again, like I said, with the, with our new Filipino programming. As the cultures and the uh, diversity increase and rise in the Bronx, the programming is reflecting that. And that's that, like I said, that's really nice. It's a nice view of who we are. You get a chance to tell different stories, different cultures, and bring them all in and have everybody a part of that. Absolutely. It's a, it's a great sharing, and it's a great education because, um, you know, it used to be you, you had your Irish sections, you had your Spanish sections, you had your Latino sections. Now we have so many, and, and everybody's living together. So uh, the idea to be able to share that and to share that rich culture, and it's it's their food, it's their dance, it's their stories of their homeland. It's, it's beautiful. And Marissa, BronxNet is obviously Bronx-focused, and other boroughs have their own version of um, public access TV. Yes. Do you guys ever share content? Yes, we do. Yeah. We share content with uh, MNN. Um, and MNN is? Uh, Manhattan, Manhattan Neighborhood Network. We've shared content with BCAT. Uh, we talk regularly with the other access centers about what they're doing and, and what their programs are. And we are focused for the Bronx, but uh, we, you know, we are part of New York City, and we do feature stories. Even even with our signature programs that we produce at BronxNet, we do step outside the borough. Um, but we try to keep our Bronx focused because this is our community, that we are the voice of our own community. And I think it's important for communities to have their own voice and for us to be able to represent and be part of the Bronx. Um, we take that very seriously, and it's very important to us that we provide that access, that we provide that channel, and not just the channel for TV, but the channel to communicate, the channel to share. I'd like to thank my guest, Fordham alum Marissa White, and Fordham student and filmmaker Casey Santiago. I'd also like to thank my producer, Patrick Russomano. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.